some of the most powerful words in the English language are tell me a story. Tell me a story. We are all storytellers and story listeners. If I were to ask the parents in this room, um, I doubt your children say to you at night, hey, mom, dad, tell me some facts. Now, what they say is, mom, dad, tell me a story. We love stories because, as James K.A. Smith said, our hearts traffic in stories. And the greatest storyteller in history is none other than Jesus Christ. Those who heard Jesus speak said about him, no one ever spoke like this man. And of all the things that Jesus taught, the parables of Jesus are the most well-known and influential stories in the whole world. People that know nothing of Jesus have heard of a prodigal and they've heard of a good Samaritan, even if they don't know all the details. But unlike many things, the best known stories are often misunderstood because they're so familiar to us that we've stopped paying attention to them. And this morning, what we do, what, we, what, what we've done in our study of Luke's gospel, we've arrived this morning to one of the most famous and beloved and familiar stories that Jesus ever told, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. You'll find this on page 869. If you're not used to looking at the Bible, you'll find this in the Pew Bible on page 869. And before we read this passage, we need to remind ourselves of the context. If you take a text out of context, you're left with what? A con, that's right. And instead of just focusing on the parable, which is verses 30 to 37, you will not understand the parable of the Good Samaritan if you don't pay attention to the conversation Jesus has with a self-righteous lawyer in verses 25 to 29. That context explains in part the meaning of why Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus, as we have seen since chapter 9, verse 51, is traveling with his disciples to Jerusalem. And when he arrives at Jerusalem, Jesus has already told us what's going to happen. He will be betrayed. He will be beaten. He will be spat upon. He will be crucified. And three days later, he will rise again. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem and he meets an expert in the law. And this is what happens next. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? 
How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, He passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three Do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, we will be helped if we pay just brief attention to the structure of this whole passage. The structure is important. Think of this as the skeleton of the text. There are two matching dialogues in this passage. It's a conversation between Jesus and the lawyer. And there's a dialogue that happens, a back and forth that happens twice. I want you to notice it. Think of this as like kids. Think of this as like two rounds of a boxing fight where the lawyer and Jesus are verbally going after each other. In round one, the lawyer stands up in order to test Jesus. In round two, the lawyer wishes to justify himself before Jesus. But in both rounds, this is what happens. The lawyer asks a question. Then Jesus responds by asking him a question. And then the lawyer answers Jesus's question. And then Jesus answers the lawyer's question. That's what happens. It happens twice, exactly that way. And the parable of the Good Samaritan is embedded in this back and forth dialogue, in this question and answer. And that's why we've got to pay attention to the questions in this passage. So I want to use four questions in the text to kind of structure our time together, okay? So there are four questions that we want to carefully understand and then answer because they not only help us understand the parable of the Good Samaritan, but they also are 
the key to understanding the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Question number one, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Question number one, if you're a note taker, that's your, that's your cue. Question number one, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look at verse 25. The passage begins with a lawyer, notice, standing up to ask Jesus a question. Uh, kids, this is not like a civil attorney. This is not a lawyer that we think of. The, when the Bible uses the word lawyer, he's talking about an expert, a Jewish expert in the Old Testament law. That's what lawyer means. And in those days, teachers taught sitting down. Teachers would sit down. Their students would, would sit around them at their feet. That's how rabbis taught. And if you wanted to show courtesy and respect to your teacher, if you were a student, you stood up before asking a question. So nowadays, what do we do? We raise our hands. In those days, they stood up. And so this man stands up, but he's not standing up because he respects Jesus or he's trying to be courteous. This lawyer is a hypocrite. How do we know that? Well, notice what we're told. Look at his motivation. He stood up, verse 25, in order to put Jesus to the test. So he's a student, but he wants to test the teacher. Now, we have a few teachers in this room. That's not how it works, right? Teachers teach, students listen and learn, but he's trying to test the teacher. He didn't really want an answer from Jesus. He wants to trap Jesus. So remember the last, the last time that Jesus was tested by someone in Luke's gospel was Satan in the wilderness. And so this expert in the law is actually putting the Lord God of Israel to the test. It's a bad idea. Later on, this, this happens all through Luke's gospel. Later on in chapter 20, verse 20, the same thing happens again. I want to read it to you. We're told the scribes and the chief priests watched Jesus and sent spies, listen, who pretended to be sincere so that they might catch Jesus in something he said. Now, why do I draw attention to this? Christian, listen, we should always strive to give honest answers to honest questions. That should be our goal. But this is a reminder to us that not all questions are honest questions. You, you will sometimes be asked questions. The person just has an agenda that they want to try to distract you by. But this question, it's not only a dishonest question, it's also bizarre if you think about it. Look at it again. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's an odd question. You don't, you don't inherit something by doing something, right? Um, an inheritance, it isn't earned, it's received, right? The, you inherit because you belong to the right family. If you have a wealthy father and you're his son or daughter, you receive an inheritance because you're in the family. You don't have to do anything. You, you just receive it. You receive an inheritance. You don't earn one. 
And nevertheless, this, he poses this question. What, what, do I, what, what must I do, in essence? What must I do to, to get eternal life? That's what he wants. Now, let me ask you this, Christian. How would you answer that question? If you, if you were leaving church this morning, you're going to your car. Someone says, I saw you leaving church. You're a Christian. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to get eternal life? How would you... This is rhetorical, but how would you answer that question? How would you answer it? Well, what does Jesus say to him? Look, look what he says. He's a rabbi, after all. He answers the question with the question. Look what he says. What is written in the law? Verse 26. How do you read it? Well, that brings us to question number two. Question number two. What does the Bible say? Question number two, what does the Bible say? Verses 26 to 28. Jesus responds to the question from the Bible expert with a question of his own, which is, what does the Bible say? What does God's word say? What does the law of God say about that question? And then he, as it were, invites this questioner to come alongside him and help him with the answer. How do you read it? It puts the, the, the weight back on the lawyer who is an expert in these things. So I just want you to pause and think about this. Jesus is the son of the living God. He is the only wise God. He is God in the flesh. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He is the, the, the goal, the telos of all of God's revelation. He's the point of everything. And isn't it amazing? The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, when he's asked a question, he doesn't simply give the answer. He points to what? The Bible. Now, you may have a really high view of the Bible. You don't have as high a view of the Bible as Jesus does. You can't get any higher. The Son of God says, Good question. What does the Scripture say? What does Scripture say? How do you read it? You're a Bible expert, after all. What does the Bible say? That's a great question. Now, listen, as you get asked questions about your faith, one of the best things you can do is not just feel like I have to know every answer because you won't and you can't. You need to develop the ability to listen to people, hear what they're actually asking, and then ask questions. Because oftentimes asking questions helps you unearth what they're really asking. And so let, if, if, what I would do is if you want a really great study, this is not in, the, not, in the, not in the passage. Take some time and read through the Gospels and notice how many times Jesus does this. It's not because he's just a rabbi. He's always asking questions when people ask questions. So follow Jesus in this. So notice the answer that the, that the lawyer gives. Verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. A, a lawyer like this would have had basically the whole Old Testament memorized. 
in Hebrew. This is like an easy question for him. He, he, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 5, the Shema, right? That we just read earlier. And he quotes from Leviticus 19, 18. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, what he's helping us understand is God's law commands God's people to love him totally, completely, permanently, and perfectly. Um, you don't need to trace out what, what's the difference between all your heart, soul, mind. The point isn't to make distinctions. The point is the totality of it. Everything that you have, everything that you are, every ounce of your being is to be devoted permanently, always and forever in loving God. That's what he says. And you, to, you are to love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. That's what, that's what the lawyer says. That we owe God perfect allegiance, perfect obedience, perfect worship, perfect love. Every second, every minute, every day, of our entire lives. That's what God calls us to. And then he says, and you are to love your neighbor who I have made in my image. So when you love your neighbor who's made in my image, I get the glory for that too. And you should love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. Now, there are lots of laws in the Old Testament, 613 if you count them. Those 613 laws can be summarized into 10. They're called the 10 commandments. Amen. There you go. Good job, sister. 10 commandments. And those 10 commandments can be summarized into two. The first four commandments in the 10 commandments teach us how to love God. And commandments five to 10 teach us how to love who? Our neighbor. So in Matthew 22, when the question is asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor, right? The whole law can be summarized with those two commandments. And that's what, that's what the, the lawyer says here. He gives the right answer. And Jesus says, look at, look at it again. He said, you've answered correctly. And then he says this. <laughs> Do this. <laughs> Do this and you'll live. You want to hear an eternal life? Okay. According to the law, this is what you need to do. Love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly. You go do this and you'll live. Now, I don't know if that's how we would have answered that question, right? <laughs> but that's how Jesus answers the question. Jesus is saying, you got to be perfect. He said this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You must be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew 548. God is perfect. He calls you to love him perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly. Only perfect people are going to heaven. That's what he's saying. Now, at this point, <laughs> when you hear this, when the lawyer hears this, you might expect him to respond with some contrition. 
You might expect him to have some conviction of sin, some admission of guilt, that he has not first and foremost loved God perfectly ever, and that even though there have been times that he's loved his neighbor, he hasn't always loved his neighbor as he loves himself. If God's holy law requires perfection, none of us are going to heaven unless unless God is merciful. So you might expect that the response of the lawyer is, oh, God, be merciful to me. What a sinner. But he's a lawyer (laughs) and he's self-righteous. Verse 29. Look what he says. Luke tells us, but. He, notice this phrase, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? That brings us to question number three. Who is my neighbor? Verses 29 to 35. Who is my neighbor? Now, imagine if someone tells you, the the son of God, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. And in your mind, you're so deceived. You just check that first one and say, yeah, I love God with everything perfectly. Check. Yeah, but here's my question. Who is my neighbor? Clarify for me who my neighbor is. I've got the first one done. What about that second one? Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? I mean, leave it. Again, no offense to lawyers. Leave it to a lawyer to look for loopholes, right? Loopholes. But we don't have to guess about his motivation. Once again, he's not not asking a question that he genuinely wants the answers for. He's asking this question, Luke tells us, because he's seeking to justify himself in the sight of Jesus. He's seeking, he's seeking to 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 show that he's righteous in Jesus's sight by his obedience to the law. We read earlier, Jenna Lee read to us in Luke 18 that Jesus later tells a parable about for someone who trusts in themselves that they are righteous and they look down on others with contempt. You realize you will go to hell for being unrighteous And you'll go to hell for being self-righteous. You can be be worldly unrighteous and be just as lost as someone who's religiously self-righteous. Our only hope is to have righteousness that's found in Christ. And so notice that this this lawyer, he, he wants to show that Jesus is that he is righteous in Jesus' sight. Now, we, we're hard on this lawyer, but I want you to just stop and think about it. Think about yourself for a minute. Just do some self-reflection. There are times when we are confronted by others with our sin, right? Now, ask yourself, when that happens, do you always immediately own it and acknowledge it that they're right and ask for forgiveness? Or do you, at that moment, become a self-defense attorney? (laughs) That's what this guy is. He's a self-defense attorney. He's not a defense attorney. But we're all like this, right? We come from a long line of 
self-justifiers, and blame shifters. Remember when, after they ate the forbidden fruit, God confronts Adam and Eve? First thing out of Adam's mouth, not my fault, God. The woman you gave me, right? That's his first, he's shifting the blame. And then Eve's like, yeah, but the serpent, right? That, that we come from a long line of self-justifying, self-absorbed blame shifters. That's what we are often. We are very quick to defend our sin and we're often very slow to confess our sin. Now this guy is asking, okay, Jesus, now define for me who my neighbors, of all these group of people, who must I love? Who do I have to love? That's the question. Now I want you to write these two verses down because they're important. Leviticus 19.18 and Leviticus 19.34. Leviticus 19.18 and Leviticus 19.34. Here's why they're important. This is what Leviticus 19.18 says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And some Jews in Jesus's day, likely this lawyer, took that verse and they defined neighbor with that earlier phrase, sons of your own people. And so they interpreted that command to mean, I'm called to love my neighbor. That is Jews just like me. I want to limit my love to just the people who are like me. And so he's asking, well, define who's my neighbor. But a few verses later in verse 34 of Leviticus 19, we read these words. You, listen, shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you just as the native citizen among you. And you shall love him just as you love yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So make no mistake, this this lawyer has no exegetical ground for limiting who his neighbor is. And I want you to think about this. He's asking, who is my neighbor that I'm supposed to? To love. He's trying to limit this command. And so Jesus responds with a parable. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he responds to this question, who is my neighbor, by telling a story. A story that we will later see doesn't actually answer the question that the, that the lawyer asked, but raises a question that he ought to answer. So let's look at the story because it's an amazing story. Verses 30 to 35. And before you look at it, just hear this. Here's the point of the story. I'm going to go to the end. This story, this parable, perfectly illustrates what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you understand? That's, what the, pur- that's the purpose of the parable. What does it mean to love your neighbor as you love yourself? Here's the answer. We're told that a man is traveling alone down a road, the 17-mile road that goes, winds down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's mostly downhill. In your mind, think about it, it drops about 3,000 feet. If you've ever been to Israel, you notice how narrow the Jericho road is. There's lots of rocks, 
Lots of caves, lots of places that people could hide out and rob you. And that's, that's exactly what, what happens here. We're not told anything about this man other than he's attacked by robbers. And they strip him and they beat him and they leave him half dead on the side of the road. But then Jesus says that two Jewish men, two religious men, one after the other, see this man. They see him on the side of the road. And instead of helping him, instead of coming to his aid, they pass by him on the other side. First a priest and then a Levite. They, pa- they see him, both of them see, notice, both of them see and both of them pass by. Now priests, of course, served in the temple worship in Jerusalem, according to God's word. The Levites were like the assistants to the priests. These two men, they would know God's word, that they would know. Now, now people have said, well, maybe, maybe they were you know, afraid that this half dead guy was 100% dead and they didn't want to touch a corpse because that would defile them. They'd be rich, ritually unclean. They wouldn't be able to serve in the temple. Maybe, maybe that was what they're thinking. We're not told. Or maybe it was just self-preservation. I mean, if you walk up and you see a guy who's almost beaten to death on the side of the road, maybe you're thinking, you know, there's some robbers in the area. I'm not hanging out here. We're not told. But the point of it is they both fail to love their neighbor. That's the point. Verse 33, Jesus says something absolutely shocking. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Nowadays, when we hear the word Samaritan, it's actually a positive word. We associate Samaritan with goodness and with kindness. If you Google good Samaritan, I mean, we call this the parable of the what? That phrase, good Samaritan, is not in the passage, but we think of the Samaritan as the good Samaritan. There's a, a, a relief agency called Samaritan's Purse. Uh, Samaritan has this idea of being good, but, but in the first century, the word Samaritan was a word that the Jews hated. They despised these Samaritans. They thought of the Samaritans, as we saw earlier in Luke chapter 9, they thought of the Samaritans as theological and ethnic half-breeds. These were people that had come back after the exile and they had intermingled with the pagan, uh, in, uh, those who were dwelling in Samaria at the time. And so Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They wouldn't spend time with Samaritans. They would avoid traveling through Samaria. They would go around so they wouldn't see them. The, the Samaritans worshipped in the north on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped on Mount Zion in the south. If you wanted to insult someone who was Jewish, you would call them a Samaritan. How do I know that? Well, John eight forty eight. This is what Jesus' opponents said about him. 
Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? (laughs) I mean, they're putting being demon possessed on the same level as calling him a Samaritan. And yeah, this is the amazing thing. Who does Jesus make the hero of the story? The priest and the Levite are not the hero. The hero is the Samaritan of all people. Imagine if you were in Ukraine right now and you told a story and the hero of the story was a Russian soldier. That would be incredibly shocking. What are you doing? That's what Jesus, he's talking to a Jewish lawyer. And notice what the Samaritan does. He he doesn't see the man and pass by. He sees him and he has compassion on him. He shows the injured man boundless mercy. His compassion is extravagant. It's it's limitless love. It's over the top. It's, It's incredible. He sees the man stripped, naked, apparently unconscious. He's left for dead and he stops. He goes over to him and he binds up his wounds. He does kids like ancient first aid. He takes the olive oil and the wine. He uses them for medicinal purposes. The man can't even walk. So he lifts the man up, puts him on his own animal, maybe a donkey, and walks alongside the man all the way to an inn. Verse 34, we're told he takes care of him. He takes care of him all night long. How do I know that? Look at verse 35. It says the next day. He didn't just drop him off at the front door and say, all right, best of luck. He takes he stays with him all night long. And then more than that, we're told he takes two denarii. That's like the equivalent of two days wages, which would have been around one month of room and board at the end. He pays one month room and board at the end. And then the Samaritan says, To the innkeeper, you take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I what? Come back and check on him. Now, in those days, if if an injured person, if if they stayed in an inn and they outstayed uh, how much they had paid for, the innkeeper could put them in slavery, which is why which is why this Samaritan is giving him enough money and saying, hey, I'll come back and pay. So the Samaritan assures the innkeeper, I'll cover all of his costs no matter what. Now, let me ask you this. You might do this one time or maybe two times, maybe for a family member, right? For a child that's your child, for a spouse, Don't miss the fact that the Samaritan does this for a complete and total stranger. He's never seen this man before. And how many of you can even imagine basically leaving an open tab? (laughs) He says, whatever you need to care for him, do it. I'll pay you back. It's over the top. It's incredible. It is limitless compassion, limitless love sacrificial, unqualified love. The Samaritan loves this man as he loves himself. 
He loves this man just like he would want to be loved if he were the one half dead on the side of the road. That's the point. Now, Jesus asks the question, and you might expect him to answer the question that the guy asked, right? Who is my neighbor? But Jesus flips the question. Did you notice? Look again. The question that prompted this parable is who is my neighbor? But Jesus asks a different question, which is the final question we're looking at this morning. Question number four. Are you being a neighbor? Are you being a neighbor? Verses 36 and 37. Look look at verse 36. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves or the robbers? It's a brilliant question. The answer comes from the lawyer, Luke 37. The one who showed him mercy. It's like the lawyer can't even use the word Samaritan on his tongue. The one who showed him mercy. And that's the right answer, right? Who proved to be a neighbor? Not the priest, not the Levite, the Samaritan, the hated Samaritan who loved his neighbor as he loved himself. And what Jesus is stressing here is the question isn't, who's my neighbor? Of all of these people, which ones can I, can I, can I say, these are my neighbors. These are the people I'm going to love. Jesus flips the question and says, no, no, no. The question for each of us, the question for this lawyer is, are you being a neighbor? Are you being a neighbor like this Samaritan? And then Jesus gives this reply at the very end. You go and do likewise. Wow. Now listen. If you take this parable out of context and just make it out to be a simple illustration of loving our neighbors, you are missing the point initially. These are probably the most devastating words Jesus could ever speak to this man. You go and do likewise. Jesus is saying in this way, he's talking to this man who is self-righteous, who's trusting in his own works, who's trusting that he himself is good in the sight of God by his law keeping. And Jesus is saying to him, in essence, you want to justify yourself? You want to justify yourself. Okay. Here's how you justify yourself by your law keeping, by your personal obedience to God's law. Okay. You go and love God perfectly and you go and love every person you ever meet completely, totally, sacrificially with no limits, just like this Samaritan loved that man. You go and do likewise. You do all of this perfectly and you'll live. Jesus is driving this self-righteous man to God's perfect and righteous law so that he might come to know his need of grace, his need of mercy. You would hope in verse 38, we would find the story of this lawyer repenting, 
and saying, I, I can't do that. I can't, I can't achieve a perfect standard of righteousness by my own works. But verse 38, it just says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. Now I was talking to Eric earlier this week and he pointed out something I hadn't thought about before. It's, a, it's somewhat hopeful. Sorry, Eric, it's not completely hopeful, but it's somewhat hopeful. <laughs> Eric mentioned maybe the reason we know this story is because later on this lawyer did repent and confess his sins and call out to the Lord for mercy. Maybe as Luke was writing this book, he met this lawyer and the lawyer helped him know this story. Maybe, I hope so, but we don't know for sure. But we do need to respond. We do need to respond to this passage. We can't just read this and shut our Bibles and say, okay, that's it. We need to respond. So let me draw two implications and then we'll be done. Implication number one, I just want you to think about, number one, the life Jesus gives. The life Jesus gives. Friend, if you think that the path to eternal life, because that was what, that was the whole question that started this whole passage. The path, if you think that the path to eternal life is by your good works or your best efforts or your obedience, Jesus is telling you in this passage, that's a dead end path. It's a dead end path. If you think like this lawyer that somehow you'll climb to heaven on the ladder of your own obedience, Jesus is telling you that you're dead wrong. Your unrighteousness and self-righteousness, whether it's religious self-righteousness or just worldly unrighteousness, both of them are equally damning in the sight of God. We need to be perfect to get into heaven. That's the point. Only perfect people go to heaven. Now, when we hear that, that's shocking and bad news. But here's the thing. None of us will ever love God perfectly. None of us will ever love our neighbors perfectly. Therefore, we are condemned. And our only hope is that God in his mercy grants us a perfect and spotless righteousness that is not our own. That's what makes the gospel, friend, such good news. The way that imperfect people can make it to heaven is not by climbing up the ladder of our obedience, but by calling out to God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And receiving the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that is credited to our account. That's what God does when he justifies us. He treats us like he treats his son. Christ pays for our sins and we receive his perfect righteousness. Why did he do this for us? Why would he do this for you? It's because he saw us in our sin and he had compassion on us. Friend, the only hope for eternal life for any of us is to trust in the mercy of Christ. And so that's what Christ is calling you to this morning, to turn from your sins 
and to cast yourself wholly and completely on the merciful, righteous one, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. He came to fulfill the law of God. And as it turns out, it's amazing to think about it. The lawyer was kind of right. Eternal life is indeed inherited. Eternal life is never earned, but it is received as a gift, as an inheritance. It's a gift received as an inheritance for those who are children of God. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, received what? He gave them the right to become children of God, born not of the will or of the flesh, but born of God. And how did Jesus accomplish this? Remember this. This is almost always forgotten when we study this passage. Where is Jesus telling the story? He himself is on the road to Jerusalem. And what is he going to Jerusalem to do? To die on the cross for sinners like you and me. He went to Jerusalem to bear the judgment of God in our place. He is the one who was fully obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the perfection that God requires, brothers and sisters, the perfection that God requires is received in the righteousness that Christ provides. And so those who trust in Christ are justified in his sight forever. And his perfection is counted as ours. The only way we get to heaven is by Christ alone. He is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by him. And I want you to think about it. When did he come to give us aid? We weren't simply lying on the side of the road half dead. The scripture tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he didn't simply cross the road to help us. He left heaven and for us and for our salvation, he came down. He indeed was stripped and he was beaten and he was crucified. And he paid in full the price of our redemption, not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. And he loved us when we were his enemies. He loved us when we were his enemies and he loves us even to the end. He gave his life in order to give us life forever. And by his spirit and through his word, he is caring for us and carrying us all the way to glory. Christian, be encouraged this morning of how this passage points to the life that Jesus gives so freely in the gospel. But brothers and sisters, there's one other thing. This will be briefer. But we can't read this passage 
as those who have been redeemed by the blood and love of Christ, he calls us to love our neighbors. And so number two, we don't want to just think about the life Jesus gives, but the love Jesus requires. We have been saved by his love and we ought to respond in this passage or to this passage by loving those around us who are our neighbors. John Newton put it like this, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Before the law of God condemned us, but now in Christ, the law is our guide. It's a wisdom for life of how we love our neighbor. And so brothers and sisters, let me ask you, from this passage, we are called to sacrificial, costly love. So as a people, let us pray, not that we love only in word, but also in deed and in truth. One time I read a a phrase, G.K. Chesterton said, we make our friends and we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. The question Jesus wants you to ponder this morning is the same one he pressed on this lawyer. Not who is my neighbor that I have to love, but are you being a neighbor? Are you being a neighbor? Who can you prove to be a neighbor towards by loving them even this week? Remembering that we love because he first loved us. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you and praise you for the matchless love that you have lavished upon us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, you have placed us in a time and a place around people who are in desperate need. People who need to know the love that we have so generously received from you. So by your spirit and for the glory of Christ, would you empower us to reach out even this week and to love and to serve and to care all for your everlasting glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.